Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study. Pastor Kirk Hall is continuing his expository teaching through the Roman Epistle. Our prayer is that God would use this time to help you continue to grow in your faith. Now let's open our Bibles as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truth to our hearts. All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're here to study them. Romans chapter 11, right where we left off. We're going to be looking tonight at a very catchy title, Israel, Apostasy, Engrafting, and Perseverance. Uh, We're going to be talking about all those things, because that's what the Apostle Paul is going to be talking about. And he is, as we've already discussed, he is wrapping up the theological section of Romans that we've seen from chapter 1 all the way through to where we are here in chapter 11. And uh, we will be moving into the practical applications more so, and not leaving the theological applications, I assure you of that. He establishes this theology for 11 chapters so that it can carry out through the rest. We're going to see the practical application of those things a little more clearly as we finish the epistle to the Romans out. So we're going to continue tonight looking at Paul giving clarity. He's still helping the Gentile understand the relationship that God had to Israel, helping Israel understand the relationship that God has to the Gentile person. So we're here and we're doing that and we're going to go ahead and jump right in and look at the text here, Romans chapter 11, verse 16, and let's dive in. 16 says this, it says, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And so remember, he began this small small section here in verse 11 asking, did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And we know that he's taught us, no, there was a sovereign and divine purpose in the fact that they have been for a season blinded. Now he's going to tonight, he's going to show us some elements of this, and he's going to make this even a little uh, more clear for us as we look at this. But he begins by making an illustration that for those people who understood anything about the Old Testament, they knew where he was immediately. He started talking about the dough offered as first fruits. And he was saying this, if you go back and you look at the law, you see that the commands that God gave Moses in regard to first fruits, they would give that portion, that first fruit of their offering, whether that was grain, whether that was dough, whatever the case was, but the whole then after the first fruits were given to the Lord, the whole was then considered acceptable as well because they had trusted the Lord with the first fruits. So he's using language that these folks would definitely understand. So he says if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. He says if the root is holy, so are the branches. We'll explain what holy means here in the context of this in just a moment. Verse 17, he says, If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been engrafted or grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Of course, he's talking to the Gentiles there who have been grafted in to the promises of Abraham. He says in verse 18, Do not boast over those branches. He's going to warn us of some things here. If you do, consider this. He says, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, 
but they were broken off because of unbelief. I want you right there to underline that in your Bible. Highlight it. That's a very important word here, unbelief. And you stand by faith. Number two very important word that we will go back to constantly tonight. They are both opposite ends of the spectrum. You have on one end of the spectrum, unbelief. You have on the other end of the spectrum, faith. We have been talking about this over and over and over. So we'll do a quiz real, real quick. How many of you here are justified by anything other than faith alone in Christ alone? Anyone? Good. All of you passed the test. So he's been talking about this and the importance of faith and how we're justified by that alone. He goes on and he says, do not be arrogant, but be afraid. He's warning them. Uh, He's warning them because it's easy for us, and we're going to see that tonight, to get in our pride and become arrogant. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Verse 22, Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue, underline that word there, continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Verse 23 says, And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, When you first read that for the very first time, you start thinking dough, batches of dough, olive trees, branches, grafted in, cut out, put back in. What does all this mean? The good news is, Paul has really already been establishing this for us along the way. And so we're going to see that. How many of you remember that all who claim to be Israel are not true Israel? He made that very clear for us in chapter 9. And so we're going to be going back to that um, in our minds. When you go go back to that literally as we look at the scripture to see the importance of that. But he begins with this, and I want you to see this, and if you have your outline, look at the first point there in verse 16. He says that there in 16, referencing again the dough, if if the part of dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. How many of you understand that God chose a holy people? through Israel, to raise up and to set apart for His name's sake. We know that He did this. We see this in Scripture. Um, And He's saying this, don't forget about what I did with Israel, how important the patriarchs are, and what was accomplished through them, how important the law truly is, and what was accomplished through that. Because in those things, we're going to see what He's telling us here in verse 16. He's talking about a setting apart of his people. And he actually references that if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. Now, when we see that word holy, we automatically jump to perfect. Um, How many of you understand? Maybe you've studied the Bible long enough to realize it doesn't always mean perfect. How many of you in this room have been set apart by God as a holy people? Raise your hand. Let me ask you this. Are you perfect? No, when we talk about the holiness of God, we know that that is perfection. 
That is complete holiness, and that is right. So we know this, that he's speaking of a positional holiness, to which none of you in this room have seen the the full fruition of that. I assure you, you will when you're glorified, but you haven't seen that yet. He is talking about people who have been set apart toward holiness. So he's using that term holy as what we know the word sanctified, to be set apart. And so what he's making very clear here is that God sovereignly chose to set Israel apart from the Gentiles. How many of you have read your Old Testament? God was over and over and over again from the time of Abraham when he made a covenant with him over and over and over again setting his people apart from the rest of the world. So he was doing this on purpose. And he uses that illustration of first fruits here to say, just as holy and set apart as Abraham was, my people will always be. His people in their entirety. Some of you will read in your Bible and you'll see a, a subtitle that says, All Israel will be saved. Does that mean all descendants of Abraham? Or does that mean all of true Israel? Of course we know it means all of true Israel. Those who have, we know, been graced with first fruits, the apostles that we see in the New Testament of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, along with all of those who believe, whether they are Gentiles, whether they are Jews. Those Gentiles being those unnatural branches that were grafted in. We'll talk more about grafting in in a second. So what he wants to establish here is that God set apart a holy people for his namesake. We know that that began with the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, if you're not familiar with the Abrahamic covenant, very important. Um, because we have been engrafted into that covenant in the new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we see that in 12.1 it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. He says in verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the first place that we see this covenant and this promise that God made to Abram, who became Abraham. And then in chapter 15, we see a sacrifice that takes place where God instructs Abraham to to take the animals, to cut them in half. And we notice that God himself puts Abraham into a deep sleep. and He walks through the middle of those sacrifices, signifying that He's going to uh, be faithful to this covenant and that it is all about, again, his monergistic will and desire uh, to raise up a people from Abram and who became Abraham. And so, and then 17 uh, of Genesis chapter 17, we see the Abrahamic covenant again, verses 1 through 27. We won't read them all tonight. Go read those things on your free time. But we see this. We see again that covenant reiterated and we see that at a hundred years old, the promise comes to fruition. He is granted, even after trying to do it on his own incorrectly with Hagar, uh, giving us Ishmael, he is then granted a son who is Isaac. And we know this. Scripture is very clear that the promise came through Isaac. Now, I promise you, you can do this. It's, it's actually fun and interesting to do. Trace the genealogy of Jesus Christ all the way back to Abraham. Uh, the Gospel writers in Matthew and Luke help you to do that. Go ahead and trace that back and see if God has not been faithful to the promise that he made to Abram. 
who then, of course, became Abraham. So we see the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament where God's people were set apart through a promise, but we also see the Mosaic covenant in the Old Testament where God's people were set apart by their good works, by the religious rituals and the ceremonies that they did, by the way that they governed and they ruled through the different forms of the law. We know there was the moral law, there was the ceremonial law, and then there was civil law. And we see through that that God's people were then continually set apart. Now, it was never God's intention that the law ever justified anyone as righteous. We know that. Uh, But in the law, they saw that they were sinners and they were in need of a Savior. Those who were redeemed see that, just as those of you who are here today who are redeemed, you saw that you needed a Savior because you are a sinner and fail uh, God's standard. So we see that God was setting apart a people for Himself. That's what He's talking about in 16. And He hasn't abandoned Israel in regard to that. How many of you know? Our faithfulness does not dictate God's faithfulness. How many of you believe Scripture is true when it says, even when I'm faithless, He's still faithful? Uh, isn't that true? So there's a promise and there's covenants that have been made throughout history to a specific group of people. Paul has been reiterating this over and over and over again. God's not through with Israel. There's a reason for the blinding for a season, but He's not through with them. They are the first fruits of the people that He is setting apart. How many of you understand Abraham was saved the same way that we are saved? He was revealed on this end of the cross the reality and the truth of the cross, and He, by faith, access righteousness from God, just as we do from the other side of the cross. Paul has made that clear. There's no reason to go back and to revisit that. We could, and it would be fun, but if you all started over there, it would be a long time before we got out of Romans. But here we are looking at things that He's already taught us that we ought to already have at least uh, some kind of grasp upon. That there was a promise made to Abraham And in that promise, God has been faithful to fulfill everything that He said He was going to do. So we see that God still desires to set His people apart from the unbelieving world. He desires to set true Israel apart. Now, when we talk about true Israel, we talk about everyone who has been included in grace through faith in Christ. We're going to see He's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about natural branches versus those wild branches and the natural branches broken off, those descendants from Abraham who did not believe, they're broken off because of unbelief. We'll talk about that. But he also is talking about those Gentile sinners, right, who weren't Jews, did not receive the law, were not set apart, who were included by grace and then engrafted in. So God still desires to set apart a people for, or from, excuse me, the unbelieving world for his name's sake. So he's saying this in the first verse, from the first fruit, to the entire batch, from the root, the branches, um, all these things are set apart and are still set apart. Why? Because God is a God who keeps His promises. Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, when we look at one of those verses in that particular covenant to Abraham, He said, I will establish My covenant as an everlasting covenant between Me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Now, when he's talking about the root, he is talking about the root of Abraham, that promise, that covenant, those patriarchs who came through Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We know how that lineage goes. 
He is talking about that in regard to what we're looking at tonight. You can tell that by the context. The next verse, he talks about this. Pay attention closely. Verse 17. He says, If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot. He's talking to the Gentiles. We are the wild olive shoots. But he says, Some other branches have been broken off. Now we can deduct from what he's been saying up until this point. He's talking about the branches from Israel who did not believe. How many of you understand? Jesus Christ came to this earth. The people He came to, His own people received Him not. They rejected Him. All a part of God's plan. We saw that last lesson, that this was all part of God's sovereign plan. Because He desires to rescue them. We're going to see at the end, there is a future promise to Israel. He is going to fulfill. There is going to be a revival of that kingdom, that promised throne of David. And they are going to see their day. God has not completely given up on them. Why? Because He made a covenant with them. He's not going to give up with them. But He says this. Some, some of the branches, they've been broken off. Verse 20, and we're going to skip to 20. We're going to come back and grab the rest in a second. I want you to see this so that we can understand 17. He says, granted, but they were broken off because of, I told you to underline this, unbelief. They were broken off because of unbelief. So we see that there was a sovereign pruning. Unbelieving branches have been sovereignly removed. And I know what happens here because many people want to try to use this text as a text to say people can lose their salvation. See, he's not talking about people who had salvation. Everybody understand? He referred to them as unbelieving. Understand this. Unbelievers don't receive salvation. Right? They were descendants of Abraham, and so they thought because they were blood descendants of Abraham that they must obviously be saved. But we know in Romans chapter 9, God said that's not the case. Just because they descended from Abraham does not make them truly from Abraham. He gives clarity to this. He's saying that the un unbelieving branches have been sovereignly removed from the descendants of Abraham. Did not lose salvation. They never believed. That's why he dubbed them unbelievers. How many of you understand this? The moment you believe, you're no longer, nor will you ever be again if you truly are saved, an unbeliever. So we see that the sovereign pruning took place because apostate Israel is not true Israel. They're not true Israel because of unbelief. Why? Can we draw that conclusion? Because the just will live by faith. So God's desire is that His people come to Him by faith. That's why immediately after verse 20 when it says, because of unbelief and you stand by faith. He's talking to Gentiles. You're here and you stand. What a comforting thing. You stand by faith. You are secure in this whole promise because of faith. They were not secure because of unbelief. We see the importance now of all the doctrines Paul has, Paul has taught, not Paul has taught, but Paul has taught up until this point about faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. We see how important these doctrines are now because apostate Israel is not true Israel because of unbelief, not because they didn't receive 
a direct lineage from Abraham, not because they didn't receive the law, because they did, not because they didn't have the prophets, because they did, not because God was not faithful to them, because He always has been. They remained in their unbelief. They are apostate Israel. Again, Romans chapter 9, verse 6. It is not as though God's Word had failed. How many of you understand God's Word doesn't fail? For not who all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Remember this when we were in 9? Nor because they are His descendants are they all Abraham's children. Paul says, and let me remind you, on the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, just so I can clear it up for you, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Paul has already established this in chapter 9, so that when we read it here in chapter 11, we understand apostate Israel, unbelieving Israel, to be what exactly what he said. These are not the true descendants of Abraham. Though they be blood descendants, they are not the true children of promise. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 says, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Verse 13 says this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier. The two one, he's talking about the Jew and the Gentile, have become one by faith in Christ, destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new man out of the two. It says His purpose was to create one true descendant and group of descendants from Abraham, those children of promise, from the Jew and from the Gentile. One man out of the two. Thus making peace. And since he is rightfully titled the Prince of Peace, that would obviously make sense, wouldn't it? And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off, far away or far, far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. That's Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Why were they near? Because there's where the patriarchs, there's where the promises, there's where the prophets, there's where the law. Here he is, he's saying, he came to preach to both of you. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Verse 19 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Talking to the Gentiles, you are members of God's household now, no longer foreigners built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. This is going to be very important when we get to chapter 12 to understand what we just said there, that we are being built into a dwelling in which God lives. Who? People from 
Israel, people from the Gentiles, who He makes one from the two, and all of them are input or engrafted or included in the promise of Abraham that we see way back in Genesis chapter 12. However, there was a pruning, and we're seeing that. I want to make it clear. Unbelieving Israel, who rejected Christ, they were removed from that promise. Why? For the exact opposite reason that we as Gentile believers here today, and any Jewish believer who does believe, for the exact opposite reason than why we were included. We were included because of what? Faith. They, whether they're from Israel, whether they're Gentile, are excluded because of unbelief. So we see that there was a sovereign pruning. There still will be a continual sovereign pruning. Meaning this, it doesn't really matter if you can trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham. If you don't have faith in Christ, you are unbelieving. And you will be removed from the root of Abraham, which is holy because it has been set apart by God. I hope by now, in all the theological things that we have covered up until this point, that's starting to make sense for many of you. I hope. So we see that sovereign pruning of the descendants of Israel who were still unbelieving. Now, we continue on in this. He says in verse 17, If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. We move to the third thing that I, I believe Paul wants us to see here is the engrafted partakers. We've seen the set-apart people, a sovereign pruning by God, the unbelievers, and the engrafted partakers. What are we, as far as engrafted partakers? He said we were wild, wild olive shoots. We didn't originally right, belong into that promise. Why? We were Gentiles. That promise, we know this. That promise was to Abraham and his descendants, or so we thought. But that word descendants was so much more when God spoke it than even Abram understood. It was more than just his posterity. It was every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people being represented as those who have faith in God for His glory alone through Jesus Christ who saved them. So we see the engrafted partakers, wild olive shoots, the Gentile believers. Engrafted in were the unbelievers, even though they were of the patriarchs. They had the law. They had the prophets. They memorized the Psalms. They did not have faith in Christ. And the only way I assure you of this. The only way that you are included in the promise of Abraham is faith in Christ. I don't care if you're from an Israeli household or a Jewish household or you have been a Gentile your whole life. You you cannot access the promises of God through anyone other than Jesus Christ. Period. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We know this, that Paul says in the Corinthian letter that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. If you're not in Christ, very important term there, in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're not in the promise. You're not in this system that he is talking about that was rooted from the promise to Abraham. 
So we see those engrafted partakers, the Gentiles, thank God that He's allowed us by His grace to partake of these glorious promises. And how do we partake of those promises? We receive them by faith. Uh, and by faith, we receive the blessing from the Abrahamic covenant that was fulfilled in the obedient sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 says this, He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. Verse 4 says, In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Verse 6 says, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs, watch this, together with Israel. Members together of how many bodies? One body. Now, there are many theologians who want to make a distinction between Israel and the church. Let me help you out. There is no distinction between true Israel and the church. They are one body through the promise of Abraham that Christ allowed us to be engrafted into. That's what he just says there. Together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Exact same thing that he's teaching us here about the engrafted wild olive shoots, the Gentiles who by faith have received the blessings and the promises of the Abrahamic covenant through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the new covenant which fulfilled all of the promises of God for everyone who is in Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that I was engrafted in where I did not belong only by His grace and His mercy. So we see the engrafted partakers. Uh, the same nourishment, I love that he says that, same nourishment that that, that the any believer receives comes from the same place. It doesn't matter if you're, you're a descendant of Israel, descendant of Abraham, or you were a Gentile without hope and without God and without promise. Now, because of Christ, you are engrafted into that nourishing fulfillment that He has made for us. He says, we share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. What a comfort that is. To know that we are engrafted into the promises of Abraham. What, what is that? What does that consist of? Go back and read again Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, and understand everything that we have been engrafted into. And understand that in 17 verse 7, again, let me remind you of that. He says he's going to establish an everlasting covenant with those of us who are in Christ through Abraham because of the promise that he made to Abram, Genesis chapter 12, 15, 17, as he instituted that covenant of his grace even to Abraham before the cross. What a glorious thing. We see the engrafted partakers. But then we're going to see this. Paul gives a warning next. He gives us the danger of pride. The danger of pride. And I want to say this. You've heard me mention a few times in passing replacement theology. Where people say because Israel blew it and they didn't receive Christ, well, tell that to Paul. Tell that to Simon Peter. Tell that to Andrew. Tell that to Bartholomew. Tell that to all of his original followers 
that no one from Israel was saved and everyone from Israel rejected. Is that true? No. It's not true. Those who were sovereignly chosen surrendered to Him as Lord and as Savior. But there is a danger here in a thing called replacement theology where you say the Jews missed their chance. God's done with them. He's only concerned about us Gentiles now. Sorry that you blew it, you bunch of Jews. How many of you have ever met anyone who held to replacement theology? It's very prominent. Um, I'll tell you this, it's very unbiblical, and I don't have a problem saying that because we just read in Ephesians that his desire was to make one body. His desire was to make one body from the two, from Israel and from the Gentiles, making the two one, destroying hostility that they once had toward one another through Christ who made peace instead of hostility. But we see the danger of pride. Paul warns that. How many of you understand that? We're always in danger of pride. Verse 18, he begins to warn the Gentiles. He says, do not boast over those branches, those wild olive branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. What is he saying? I want you Gentile believers in the room to understand this. If there would not have been a promise to Abraham, if there would not been have been an Israel that God raised up, you would not be saved today. There would not be a Messiah who came through that line to rescue you. Thanks be unto God that there was. He's saying that. That root is what is supporting you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Well, they didn't believe, so I'm now grafted in. You can just hear the American Gentile stick his chest out and say that, can't you? He goes on and he says, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. He said, don't forget how you stand. You don't stand in your own self. You stand in the faith that you have been given. So you're standing because God sovereignly graced you with faith. You're standing because of God. He says, do not be arrogant, but be afraid. What an interesting statement. Many people think that we fear God until we get saved, and then we don't fear God anymore. He's saying, no, be, be very afraid. A God doesn't play around. Now, he's speaking to the whole here. He says this in verse 21. He says, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will, he will not spare you either. Now, is he saying again that you Gentiles who have believed in this room could lose salvation? Not what he's saying at all. He's saying this, any Gentile who does not believe will not be saved. Don't think because God has extended His grace to the Gentiles and you live here in the South in the Bible Belt, Texas, you're a good old boy, and you, you love Trump, and America, and Jesus, or so you say, that everything's going to be okay. He's saying this, if you don't have faith in Christ, you are in unbelief. And don't think for a second that you can stay in your unbelief and think that you are really grafted into the promises of God through Abraham that were fulfilled through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He said you are just in danger of becoming so prideful and so arrogant that you lose sight of the fact that this is all by grace through faith in Christ alone. It has nothing to do with you. He's been building all of this this whole time, all the way through Romans, so that he could say this right here. Hey Gentiles, don't get arrogant because I know people who was once arrogant and thought that they were the only ones God loved. And then when he came to this earth to, to show the depths of his love for them, they crucified him 
and they didn't believe who was who he truly is. So don't think if he didn't spare those unbelievers that he's not going to do the same. If you're a Gentile and you stay in your unbelief, you won't have a place in the promise as well. The danger of pride. Pride brings boasting. It brings arrogance. And we can see that many of the replacement theologians throughout the ages, they scream pride and arrogance. Israel forsook Jesus and now it's all about us. I can tell you this, any Jew right this very moment, I pray that it's happening somewhere, any Jew who trusts by faith in Jesus Christ will be included and engrafted back into the promises of Abraham because of faith in Christ. So will any Gentile. None of us need to be arrogant about that. Why? Because it's all grace and it's God who has done that. He has engrafted us in. Did you catch that? Did you? Any, anybody here jump into the root? No. You're sovereignly placed into the root. He's saying don't be arrogant. Don't forget that this is God's grace. Your pride is going to get you in trouble as an entire people group, right? Many people think that they're going to heaven. In fact, everyone in America goes to heaven. I've been enough to enough funerals to know that. And they think that they're going to heaven just because they're Americans. Is that true? Did you know this? Israel once thought that they were going to spend an eternity in heaven just because they were Israel. And that everybody else was not important. And we know in Christ all of that was straightened out. So he's warning, don't in your pride become arrogant and boastful. He made it very clear that Gentiles as a whole and Gentiles as individuals need not be arrogant as Israel once was, leading to their demise and to their national apostasy. Their unbelief. He's warning them. Take heed of that warning. Pride is a cancer. Proverbs tells us that. What does it tell us? Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction in a haughty spirit before the fall. How true is that? Israel experienced that. The Gentiles, he's telling them, you could experience the same thing. Don't take anything for granted. Be thankful for the grace that God has shown you. We see the, doc- the danger of pride. Let's move to the doctrine of perseverance. doctrine of perseverance says here, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. He says sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. Watch what he says here. Provided that you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Still talking about branches. He's still talking in that terminology. What is he talking about? He's talking about the doctrine of perseverance that a lot of people don't talk about. Or we could call it persevering faith. Or we could actually call it true saving faith if we really wanted to go that far. Because I believe that's exactly what it is. That a true believer is going to persevere until the end. Because faith has them. It's not that they have faith. It's that faith has them. So a true believer will persevere. Why? Because God, in His undeniable, irrevocable, sovereign work, has secured you by faith in Christ. Now, who is He speaking to here? 
not speaking again to believers who decide, well, I've tried Jesus for a little while, right? Like the bumper sticker, try Jesus. If you don't like it, the devil will take you back. It's ridiculous. Jesus is not something that you test drive or try. He's not the sample lady at Sam's Club on a Saturday. Back when we used to have those. You, you were poor like me. When you were dating your wife, you took her there on date night so you could catch a movie and get a meal. <laughs> Y'all laugh because you know it's true. Y'all are all cheap like me. But we see the doctrine of perseverance here and we see that He is speaking to us about those who didn't have true faith to begin with. To begin with. They may have had an intellectual knowledge. We all discovered at this point you're not saved by grace through your intellect. Because we'd all be in trouble. You're saved by grace through faith. And we've learned. It's a gift. It's not of works. It's a gift of God. Why? So that no man can boast. Funny, it's coming off of a command where Paul says, don't boast and don't become arrogant. Just because you, you as Gentiles have been included, don't think that you're somebody now. Because we're all dependent upon God's grace. You must persevere in faith. Here's the good news about persevering in faith. If you're truly in the faith, the Holy Spirit perseveres for you. That's the importance of the indwelling Spirit who secures you. How do we know He secures us? Because He is a deposit guaranteeing our redemption. Holy Spirit indwells you. You can pretty much understand this 100%. You have the guarantee of final redemption. You will persevere until the end. Who is He talking about then here? Again, He's talking about apostates, those who finally reject faith in Christ after hearing the general call of the Gospel over and over. And they fall away from that general call and say, I, you know, I don't want this Jesus. I don't believe this Jesus. And there comes a point where there is a final rejection in hearing that general call. Where they say, I don't want to hear it anymore. Right? These are the guys who when you go to their door to share the Gospel with them, they say, I'm not interested. Boom! They slam the door in your face. They're just not interested. I would recommend not doing this. Don't knock and ask them to come back and try again. Dust your feet off. Says the Lord, instruct it. And go on to the next house. Because it could be in the next house that God has prearranged that you share the Gospel with that person because He desires to engraft them sovereignly into the place of that person who is an apostate who has fallen away. Understand that. They were broken off because of unbelief. God's grace allows others to be engrafted in. And when they are engrafted in by faith, they are there forever. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us about apostates. And many people want to try to claim that apostates are people who lose salvation. How many of you know being enlightened to the truth of the Gospel and being saved by grace through faith in Christ alone are two totally different things. Right? I can tell you this. I was enlightened to the Gospel many times before I was ever sovereignly saved. Right? The Gospel is so clear, a little, little kid can understand it intellectually. But remember, our intellect doesn't save us. Christ saves us. He allows us to access that salvation by the faith that He entrusts us with. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39 he talks about the true believer and he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe 
and are saved. Now, prior to that, he's talking about the people who commit apostasy. He's warning about it. For the sake of time, I don't want to make you read all of that. But he finishes up with, to the true believer, but you're not the ones who shrink back. You're the ones who persevere. You believe. Your faith stands the test of time. And because of this, we know you are saved. First John chapter 2, in talking about apostates, he says this, verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Watch what he says here, if you don't believe in the doctrine of perseverance. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Makes sense, doesn't it? But their going showed. So when they turned their back on faith, they had that intellectual knowledge. And they said, you know what? That's as far as we're going with this. We don't really truly believe in Christ. If you can ever reject Christ, I'll make it clear to you. Everybody listening? All these people in our society who are coming back and they're rejecting their faith that they say that they once had. I got news for them. They never had it. Because it would have them. He's making it very clear they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. He's saying they were never a part of the body. They were never a part of the chosen. All they dabbled in church. They heard the message. They might have even been able to quote a little Scripture. But at some point in time, they walked away from the faith. And in doing so, it proved that they never had true saving faith. They are apostates. Now, the scary thing about that, are you listening? There's no hope for them. They've walked away from the only hope that any of us have. And so we see here that he's teaching us the doctrine of perseverance. He, again, in verse 22, read it together, what he says. He says, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fall or who fell, but kindness to you. So who fell? The unbelievers who were of Israel. He said that he's stern to them. But he's kind to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, watch what he says here, they will be grafted in. He's saying if they turn and repent and believe, they have a place. He's not saying anything different than he's been saying this whole time. That there's hope for all. There's hope for Israel, who is lost and in their sin. There's hope for the Gentile, who's lost and in their sin. But whoever is truly saved by faith, he's saying, they're going to continue. And if they don't continue, they are cut off. Remember, he's using this illustration that we can see so that we can understand it. He's saying it's just as Israel, who started with Abraham, did Abraham trust God by faith? Was it accredited as righteousness? But somewhere, sometime, others did not, did they? They were unbelieving Israel. He says they were apostate. They were cut off. And he's warning us and he's saying this too. If you don't continue in faith, you are in danger of the same fate. Very scary thing. That's that bothers me. You should be bothered. If your faith in Christ is not so solid that you could walk away from it at any moment or be talked out of it, 
you don't have true faith. You need to work out your own salvation, your own faith with fear and trembling. You need to examine yourself and see, are you really of the faith? I don't say that to scare anyone. It's not my job to scare you. I say that because this is a serious matter. Paul wants them to see that this is a serious matter, that the doctrine of perseverance is true proof of faith. And there will be apostates, both from the Jews and the Gentiles. Many of us know Gentile apostates, those people who at one time were in church and they fooled everyone. And now they're back in the world denying the faith that they once claimed to have in Jesus Christ. John says they went out from us because they were not of us. What I'm not saying is that a Christian can't get off into sin. You haven't heard me say that. Can you? Yes, many of you have proven that, right? Me being one of them. Now, talking about sin, we're talking about a total rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as the only way to the Father. If you hear anybody who says, I once believed in Jesus, but I don't anymore, you can know this. They never really truly believed in Jesus because when we are in Christ, He has us. And no man shall snatch you from my hand. Right? So here's the thing. Any men in here? That includes you. You can't snatch yourself from His hand. If you're in His grip, you're in His grip. It's all about His grace. So we see He ends here with the future promise for Israel. Good news for them. He's been saying this in the last three lessons. Pay attention. God's not done with them. Pay attention. It's not over for them. Oh yeah, there's a season. Yeah, there's many who are in their unbelief and, and they have been cut off. But there's still hope. He talked about just a couple lessons ago, a remnant of grace. Right? He used that, that famous illustration of Elijah. Now he was there and I'm the only prophet. He said, I got 7,000 reserved. I know what I'm doing. You don't, you don't worry about what I handle. I've got this. So he's going to give that future promise to Israel here. Verse 23. He says, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off, a cut out, excuse me, of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted in into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. And he's using these agricultural terms that obviously for a reason they would have understood. And he's saying this, if grafting a wild olive branch into that tree works, how much more will it work if I graft in a believer who is a descendant of Israel, who trusts in Christ, and who believes? Uh, You ever meet someone who was raised as a Jew who then later was converted to Christianity, they know all of the Old Testament and now they know Christ and they know Him personally and they by faith have entrusted in Him sovereignly plucked from their sin. Let me tell you this, that person is a powerhouse evangelist, I assure you. Because he can make things make sense in here that we as Gentiles really don't understand because they have a special understanding of the things that were specifically for them originally. He's saying, how much more will I also put them back in where they belong. So there's a future promise uh, that believers from Israel will be grafted in. And let me just say this. They're not grafted in any other way than the Gentiles. The Gentiles are included. How? How did he say the wild olive branch was included? Faith. 
So those who are truly descendants of Israel, they must be engrafted in by faith. Their works are never going to save them. No man will be justified by observing the law. But they must come to faith in Christ. And they're grafted in only by faith in Christ. It's interesting they missed this. We can see it in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Now, I know many of you are probably reading Zechariah. It's probably the most popular book in the Bible. You read it all the time. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I love Zechariah because there's a lot of wealth there. He says this in verse 10. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Zechariah is looking into the future and he is saying that God's people, the descendants of Abraham and the house of David, who they are the descendants of Abraham, he's saying they are going to come to a place where they are going to look upon him, the one who they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. They are going to see what they did as a nation and as a people. He's going to open their eyes. And through that, He is going to save some of them. Which ones? The ones who He foreknew in eternity past. It hasn't changed. He foreknew all of true Israel in eternity past. And He chose them for salvation, predestining them to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. We read on in Zechariah 13, verse 1, On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David. Again, when we talk about the house of David, we're talking about the true descendants of Israel. He says it will be open to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Who do you think that that fountain might be referring to? Uh, the only one that I know who cleanses anyone from sin. So way back in the Old Testament, Zechariah, he reveals this. They missed it. Isaiah chapter 53. In your Bibles, turn there. Any of you guys bored with this yet? Somebody said, yeah, I'm hungry. i got to go. Isaiah 53. I want you to see in Isaiah 53 what is taking place here. Many times we think that a prophet is at one place in time and he's looking into the future and he sees that and he reports what he has been allowed to see from point A to point B. However, Isaiah 53 and 54 is written, Isaiah 51 all the way through 54 and probably the remaining prophetic texts concerning Christ are actually written from a different vantage point. We'll see it in the wording as we read this, but Isaiah is not seeing from point A to point B. Meaning Isaiah is not seeing from his day to the cross of Jesus Christ. Isaiah is seeing from Israel's day of redemption that Zechariah was talking about when that fountain was opened up and they received forgiveness for their sin. From Zechariah's vantage point, where the house of David and the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication was poured upon them. He's looking from beyond the cross 
back to the cross. Because there is going to be a future redemption of Israel. I'm setting this up because the next lesson, we're really going to see that uh, even more clearly. But I want to set this up by reading 53 and 54 to you. He says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Speaking in past tense, I told you, he's already here looking back. He had no beauty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. See how he's speaking in past tense? He goes on and says, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and was, and we esteemed him not. Who is the we? Who he's talking about here? He's talking about Israel. He said, we esteemed him not. He goes on and says, surely. Now from this vantage point of here on the other side of the cross, cross at the future promise of the redemption of Israel and the establishment of the kingdom of David on the earth forever, we know that that will be fulfilled in Christ These Jewish believers are now, who are beginning here to believe, looking back, and they say this, Surely, He took up up our infirmities, carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God. We missed it. You see that? See the tense that the Scripture is written in here. He said, We considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way and the Lord has laid on Him, again, Christ, the iniquity of us all. I want you to see smitten and afflicted and pierced and crushed. Did you know this? The method of death in Isaiah's day was not the cross. Watch this. Isaiah would have known nothing about a Roman cross because there were no Romans. Isaiah is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, here looking back on that Roman cross, realizing that there is a future redemption for Israel and they are going to see. They are going to see Christ who was crucified for them. He goes on and he says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. Now watch, if he was just Isaiah looking to the cross, he would have said he would, he would be oppressed and afflicted and would not open his mouth. He's speaking beyond that. He's looking back from another place. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. We know that though he was cursed, he cursed no one. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. He goes on to say, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. There's your Old Testament reference to the resurrection. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. 
and he will bear their iniquity. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Well, what in the world would that mean other than the fact that he was crucified between two thieves? For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 54 says, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into joy, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate womb than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. He says, Stretch your tent curtains wide, and do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dis- dispose nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. He's talking about future redemption. Do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is His name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. Watch this in verse 7. For a brief moment, I abandon you. But with deep compassion, I will bring you back. Remember, we are talking about the future promise for Israel. There is redemption. Paul saying, don't give up on them. God hasn't given up on them. Just as the, the first fruits of that dough was holy, so is the whole batch. You Gentiles, don't become arrogant because there's still a place for God to bring His people, the Jew, back into His grace through faith. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth, so now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken for my covenant of peace or my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted. Hasn't Jerusalem been lashed and not comforted? He goes on and he says, I will build you with stones of turquoise your foundations with sapphires. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls as precious as stones. All your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does not, if anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. So I'm never going to bring the Babylonians against you again, or the Assyrians, or the Romans, or the Ottoman Empire. No one is coming against you again. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith who fans the coal, the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who, who have created the destroyer to work havoc. No weapon form, forged against you will prevail. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Now, if you want to read 55, keep on reading 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you 
who have no money, come buy, eat, come buy wine and milk. You say, I am your provider. I've always been your provider. We see here the future invitation and the future acceptance of Israel. We know this. At least 144,000 of the descendants of Abraham, the true descendants, will be saved. 12,000 from 12 different tribes. Now, we also know this. I told you. And someone who is a Jew is born again into Christ. They are a powerhouse because they have knowledge that we could never possess. Those 144,000 that are going to be unleashed on the earth as a squad of evangelists, I promise you this, others will come to faith through their testimony. Why am I saying all of this? Right? Because some people, I get it, you don't care. I'm saying all this and it should be great comfort to us. God has decreed that many from Israel will be grafted in through faith into the promise of Abraham just as we who are Gentile believers have been grafted in by faith into the promises of Abraham through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What does that mean to us Gentiles? It gives us great confidence. It gives us great confidence in this. God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Did God make a promise to Abram? How long did He say that promise was going to last? Everlasting. It's forever. Did God, by His grace, engraft us as Gentiles into that same promise? Is He forever faithful? We see that in the fact that though Israel for a while is blinded as a nation, He says there's going to be a revival because I have made a promise. Aren't you thankful that His covenants are based upon His faithfulness and not based upon your performance? God who is faithful to all He has promised will be faithful forever. Many times we get to this portion of Scripture and we go, Man, I don't really care about that because Israel really has nothing to do with me. Really nothing to do with you? Don't forget, it's not you who supports the root, dear Gentile, but it's the root that supports you. Don't forget that. Don't take that for granted. Were it not for the promises that God made to Abram, we would not have a Savior. We would not be redeemed. We would not be included by His grace into forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and the salvation that we freely have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together and thank Him for His faithfulness. Lord, we thank You for who You are and that we can count on everything that You say. That the promises that You made to Abraham thousands of years ago still apply today even to us who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, they also apply to those from Israel who will believe in the future, just as Isaiah and just as Zechariah were told. Lord, there will be a day where their kingdom is restored, where their city is restored, where they will dwell with You as You have promised and they will serve You and worship You and together we will rule and reign with You in that glorious period of time. Lord, we look forward to that. We look forward to Your coming. We look forward to the restoration, the salvation that You and You alone can bring. Lord, I pray that none of us be arrogant in the fact that You have graciously and sovereignly chosen to save us. 
God, that we would get on our face, on our knees, and once again proclaim appreciation, thanksgiving to a magnificent God who loved us so much. He came to this earth as a man to die and to rescue us. Thank You, Lord. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your sacrifice. Without You, we are nothing. I pray for the soul who may be here today, the soul who may be listening, who's never truly surrendered by faith to Jesus. Lord, I pray that by Your Spirit, You would draw them out of darkness and into light. Receive Your glorious grace and mercy and forgiveness in Christ. Again, I pray for these men, their homes, their lives. Bless them. They seek to do Your will, to learn Your Word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world. Mm -hmm.